James chapter 1 is where we are today. One of the most significant lessons that we learned last week in our exposition is that trials can either drive us to God or bring us into defeat, depending on how we respond. Life is 10% what happens, 90% how you respond to it, someone said, and there's truth in that. We saw this principle from the term that's translated trials here early on in the chapter and temptation later, the very same Greek term. The reason the translators use different words in English is because of the context. And it, the context demands a different word. Point being, our life context may demand that we take note that we not fall into temptation because of a trial. So, as by way of review, the trial is not so much our focus as it is our response to it. That is why James, in verse 2, says, Count it all joy. Not that we love going through difficulty. I'm pretty sure none of you do. But we love what God does through the difficulty. By way of reminder, trials are certain. They are unexpected. They are varying. They vary in scope and intensity and effect. And they are painful. That's why they're called trials. And our list of all of these things in our lives could go on and on and on but God. In every growing believer's life, there is a holy but God. God has come into your life. God is present. He is ordaining what you're going through. The same Emmanuel, God with us, who came into the world through a virgin, who rose from the dead victoriously and is with all his people through every age, is with you and me as we go through these difficulties. And what is he doing? He is producing endurance. He's strengthening. He's purging our sinful self-reliance. He is ensuring by this process that the life of Christ shines through our lives. But in order to successfully go, and by the way, remember that if we fail the trial, what happens? If we fail the, the pop quiz that God gives, what happens? You get re-enrolled in the curriculum. <laughs> Always works that way. So, I'm for not being re-enrolled, aren't you? I'm for succeeding, although I have a long list of failures. We need to grow, and so we need God's wisdom in order to do so. First of all, let's look at the discovery of the need for wisdom. And I have taken the liberty to put an outline in the bulletin for you. Some people have told me that I go a little fast, and it's hard to write as much as I say if you are in the habit of writing. So I've given you an outline, and uh, obviously you can write as much as you want. But your first blank there, and I won't say that every time, but as you can see, I've underlined your blank. And so the discovery of our need for wisdom. James cracks me up the way he writes. If any of you lacks wisdom. I have to believe he had a smile on his face when he wrote that. 
Obviously, the Spirit of God is leading him to write that. But I have to believe he's, he's got a, a little bit of a grin on his face because who would say he has enough? In fact, if somebody says, I don't need any more wisdom, they have immediately shown how desperately they do need it. <laughs> so, but here's the question. How do we know what wisdom we need and where it needs to be applied? Well, I have an answer for you, but you're not going to like it. God gives us a printout, as it were, when we fail. I, let me illustrate that for you. We were part of a church in New Jersey. Yes, God has people in New Jersey. It's the land of the Philistines, but he has a few people. We were part of a church that was perpetually in self-destruct mode. I was one staff member. We, the, some of the staff members cared that it was in self-destruct mode, and we... It was a particularly difficult day. And I was walking in the house, not really realizing how much stress the day had produced in my heart. And I walked in the house, and the first thing Vicki said to me, I snapped at. Well, now, at that moment, she could have snapped back. But what she did is she just took one step into my personal space. You know, wives can do that. And she put her hands on my chest and she said, why don't you just go lay down until dinner's ready? Boy, did I feel like I felt really bad at that time. <laughs> Joel's laughing at me. <laughs> you know, that was the, our printout at that moment. Um, I realized how desperately I needed God's wisdom and how much of it she was showing the point is, the discomfort of the trial. None of us loves failing. But in God's hands, when we fail, God is the only one who can take that negative experience and use it for good in our lives. And so in his hands, he shows us how desperately we need him and how much and where that wisdom needs to be applied. So, and James obviously says, if we, if we lack wisdom, ask of God. And you may be thinking, well, of course we're going to ask of God. Where else would we seek it? Well, that's because you're spiritual. But there are people in the church who claim to be Christians and never open the Word of God to seek the wisdom of God for themselves. They're what we would call street smart. They have wisdom gained from everyday life, from other people other experiences in life, and these are, in fact, sources of wisdom, but God is the one who gives you wisdom, and these sources could be wrong at times, and so we need the unchanging word of God as the filter for life. It is the filter through which life makes sense, and so James says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. I want to show you five things in verse 5 that will help us get our minds around this need for God's wisdom. First of all, ask of God. God is the one who gives liberally and without reproach. God has so postured himself. Remember, God with us, Emmanuel, he is there. He is right beside us in the midst of the trial. It feels lonely, but it's not. He is the one from whom we gain wisdom. 
James tells us that it is available to all who ask. He says he gives to all. All being translated means what? All. Everyone who seeks the Lord in his wisdom will find it, no matter who you are, whether you're young or old, if you're newly born again, or if you've walked with God a long time, if you are brilliant or just like me of average intelligence. You are God's child through Jesus, and these promises are yours. His promise is that if you ask, you will receive it. Thirdly, that his wisdom comes with liberality. This is the New King James. I like the word that ESV uses here, generously. Oh, that's a great word. God gives his wisdom when we ask freely, generously, liberally, lavishly. Kids, it's like if your dad gives you help on your algebra. And he, he not only helps you solve the problem, but he does so in a way that gives you 100% on the exam. That's God. That's God lavishing his wisdom on his child. He says, let him ask who gives to all liberally and without reproach. Some of us grew up in homes where dad was not always happy about what we didn't know. My home was like that. Now, my dad got really soft in his old age, but, man, he was really intolerant when we were younger if we didn't know something that he felt like we ought to know. And there was not a lot of verbal control around that point as well. But God is not like that at all. God gives us what we need without railing at us, without criticizing or taunting us because of what we don't know. God, of all, peop- of God, of all persons, knows how much we lack and he never responds negatively toward one who has postured himself in dependency and who looks to him and wisdom from God comes with certainty what does it say and it will be given James underscores catch this he underscores God's predictability when you ask God for his wisdom you don't wonder if he heard you do you No, the scriptures tell us that his ear is inclined toward us. He's he's predictable in this matter. No matter the size of the trial, the scope of our failure in the trial, God can be depended on. When we are humble and we are receptive, he will come through. Read this with me for a little more assurance. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us stop. Is it his will that you be wise in the things that he's taught at you in his word? Absolutely. 15. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked from him. I don't know about you, but that gives me security. But there's a couple of things that can go wrong in your search for wisdom. James tells us that there are actually hazards to gaining wisdom, and there are two. They do not rest with God. They rest in these sinful, fallen hearts of ours. First of all, it is a wavering faith. James says, but let him ask in faith without doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, 
unstable in all his ways. Some of you Navy guys know what, you're talk, what, this, what James is talking about when he talks about the driven by the sea. Um, I ha- don't get seasick easily, but it has happened. <laughs> that back and forth, up and down, side to side movement over and over again can really get to you. It can make you seasick. Hope you're not feeling green right now just by me saying that. But if that's the way we approach God while we're asking God for his help in the midst of trial, and if we don't really believe that he's going to help us, then we don't have seasickness. We have faith sickness. James says that we're double-minded. Literally, that means two-spirited. Vacillating back and forth. Do you ever wonder why churches are unstable? Because people are unstable. (laughs) Unstable churches are caused by unstable people. People who are double-minded. You see, double-minded and unstable people may may be kind to one another. They may love being together when we're together. But they do not give themselves to the source of wisdom to seeking God and his word. And so they gain their spiritual energy from being together. And then when we are in the world, we do not have the ability to stand out for the name of the Lord or to stand firm against evil or to stand up for righteousness. We're two-spirited. We're vacillating. We're wavering back and forth like a raging sea. Can I just say, if you just saw yourself in that description... If you understood that that was you, I just want to point out that that was the Spirit of God that showed you that. And, and you need to follow through on that thought, that heart thought that God just gave you, and turn to him confessing and forsaking the way you are and that you need him to shore up that deficiency in your heart. God's call for us is to face whatever he sovereignly brings into our lives with a faith that believes that he will bring about the solution and we, he will give the needed wisdom for the outcome. A wavering faith, a two-spirited person will miss that. Secondly, James tells us that we need to be careful of how we view ourselves. A warped view of oneself will short-circuit the wisdom matter. And the issue that James focuses on here is economic status. And you say, well, that makes, sounds a little strange to me, Dave. Well, if you think about it, that is what most people evaluate each other by. James is very practically minded, and the Spirit of God chose James for this writing intentionally. And so he, he, he wants to use James's thinking, and James understands the way people are because the Spirit of God is leading him to do that. Humanistic wisdom places prestige and power in what we have. Spiritual wisdom uses a very different standard of evaluation. In a previous church, a gentleman came up to me and he made a very disturbing comment to me. He said that he sought to fellowship with people of his same economic bracket. Now at first I was shocked that he said it because I had actually given him more credit as being further along in the maturity than, than he was, than he demonstrated by saying that. Secondly, I was sad. 
Because that kind of thinking is really very shallow. And it deprives us of the rich fellowship in some of our brothers and sisters who have very little of this world's goods. So James speaks first to this false standard of measure. And he says in verse 9, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. What is he talking about? What kind of exaltation might he be speaking of? Well, remember how you come into the faith. We come into the faith by being poor in spirit. We see ourselves as spiritually destitute, bankrupt, unable to help ourselves, without any adequate resources to come to God on our own. And we are under his wrath. We cannot satisfy him without God's merciful help. Our exaltation, as James puts it, is coming into that relationship. And so it's not, a, it's not what do I have or not have, it's who am I in Christ. This is the focus of the man without economic status, the person of meager financial means. Not what he doesn't have, but what he does have. Let the brother of lowly, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Brothers and sisters, understand this, that it is the lowly person, the person of humble means, who resembles Jesus Christ in the world. Christ had nowhere to lay his head. He made himself of no reputation. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You will gain God's wisdom if you see yourself the way God does. (laughs) Glory in your exaltation. Your true exaltation is who you are in Christ. Then he moves on to the believer of significant income. He says, but the rich, and there's an implied Uh, verb here, the rich should glory in his humiliation. It is exactly the opposite. Those who have this world's goods should glory in their humiliation. What is his point? The very same point. We have all humbled ourselves to come into Christ because as a flower of the field, now he's talking about his status as a rich person now, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass Its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will fade away in his pursuits. Now, notice something. James does not say that having wealth is sinful. And he doesn't say that it's something that you should be disdaining. His spirit-inspired commentary here is that for rich people, people who have this world's means, should have the appropriate focus just like people without means need the appropriate focus. He needs to glory in his humiliation. In fact, James is saying the same thing to both groups. For the wealthy person, what rejoices the heart is not what he has on earth, but what he has in heaven. Amassing and retaining riches is no longer the primary consideration of his life. In Christ, he's learned that he has a totally different perspective. For this world. He's understood that genuine wealth 
lies in the things that abide eternally. In comparison to the unshakable possessions of eternity, the things that he has around him are recognized as what they are, simply transitory and uncertain. Instead of the pursuit of wealth as the primary goal of life, all of us should employ what we have, whatever God has given us, for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. There is a gentleman in Florida that, that my path crossed with several years ago. He's a pilot with a major airline. And he has a lot of what this world offers. The airline pays him very well. But he's at a stage in life where he has intentionally cut back his hours with the airline. He's purchased several small planes of his own. And on, during his off time, he uses the wealth that God has given him to ferry people and supplies from Florida to islands in the Caribbean. The mission he started, while he's still employed, is called King's Wings. Isn't that a really cool name for a mission, for what he does? My point is that he has understood what our author here is instructing, that whatever God has given us, we glory in who we are in him, and we use what we have for his glory. We can't overstate how important it is to see ourselves the way God sees us and to look at each other the way God sees us. We walk by faith, and we should therefore evaluate life, including what we have or don't have, by the eyes of faith. Which means that that's not important at all, except that how we pool our resources to further the kingdom of God. What we have personally almost becomes completely irrelevant as far as who we, how we see each other. And he, James will actually deal with this further in chapter 2. But what is relevant is that we have bowed our knees to God in surrender. And I trust that you have, that you have become his child through the faith in Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. Can I remind you, dear ones, that you don't come into the kingdom of God by coming forward or by signing a card or by doing anything. You come into God's family by raising the white flag, by complete surrender, by understanding that you and I were condemned sinners, justly so, and that God, without ever tainting his own holiness or his mercy or grace or anything, condemned us to an eternity without Christ and in the flames of fire. And it is only through that grace, only through fleeing to his heart of mercy, can we, be, can we miss that kind of condemnation. And so we come to him, as the hymn writer said, nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross, I cling. That's what it means to be in God's family. And that's what the way we should look at each other. That is the wisdom that comes in knowing who we are in Christ. Next week, we are going to, sorry, that kind of went beyond the, the uh, screen there. We're going to understand more about what's in our hearts because James says that our hearts are the things that lead us astray. You know, the Bible speaks of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is definitely a problem. I don't really need the devil. I can trip myself up without him. There's enough problem right here to deal with. And James is going to actually help us understand our own hearts. And that is why we need God's wisdom. 
Look at the screen one more time, and let's use these four points that I give you as a means of meditation as we come before the Lord's table, as God's people coming before his table, and reflecting on who we are and what God's done in our lives. Here are the lessons that we've seen so far. Trials surface our need for God's wisdom. God's wisdom seeks God's way, regardless of circumstances. Can I just ask you, is that you? Or are circumstances dictating your walk with God? Being firm in your pursuit of God is a mark of those who actually belong to God. God's wisdom comes to the one who does not waver in belief. Our heart, wavering back and forth like the waves of the sea, can actually derail us coming to understand what God is doing through the trials of life. And lastly, the wisdom from God teaches us to view one another according to who we are in Christ, not according to the wealth that we have amassed. Would you bow your heads with me? Ryan will leave those up for a few minutes if you wish to use those as a point of contemplation as we come before the Lord. But would you just take the word of God that you've heard and make sure that you are a clean vessel before him this morning. That's the reason we come together to sit under his word. We want to leave different than we came. We want to be changed by what we've heard. And we need the wisdom of his word. Father, I for one thank you that you are our God and that you have committed yourself to walking through life with us. I thank you that even though it appears dark when we're in the midst of a difficulty, you are there. We can see you with the eyes of faith. We can trust that you are true no matter how dark it seems, no matter how distant it seems that you are. We cry out to you and we know that you hear us. Thank you for your faithfulness, O Lord. Thank you that it is the shed blood of Christ that made us your children, not any amount of good works that are ours. Father, we exult in the position that you've given us. The king of the universe has made us his children. What a wonderful exaltation you've given us. And those of us who have been given a lot of the world's resources, Lord, we need to think about how humbling it is to be entrusted with so much. And think about how we can bring you glory, O oh Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who care for your word and who are even now pressing it to their hearts and evaluating where they are before you, O oh Lord. We give you praise in the name of Jesus.